Stamattina mi sono alzato, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. Stamattina mi sono alzato e ho trovato l'invaso. Welcome back to the John Sandoz podcast. A House in the Mountains is the latest book from Caroline Moorhead. It tells the gripping story of four Piedmontese women who bravely fought to undermine German occupation. Upstairs at the bookshop, Caroline was joined by author and journalist Alex Preston. Ladies and gentlemen, what a pleasure to be here uh, at a bookshop that I didn't know and yet have fallen in love with. Um, and I'm afraid uh, Arabella and Johnny are good. Arabella? Is that, did I get that? My wife's name as well. Um, which is why it gave me pause. Um, we'll be seeing a lot more of me. What a, a, a magical place this is. Um, we are here tonight to talk about uh, a very special book, uh, A House in the Mountains by Caroline Moorhead. Caroline is, of course, uh, a, a, a renowned biographer. Um, and one of the things I hope we'll talk about tonight a little bit is the way that her biography has has moved her into um, in, into the role of a historian and a serious historian of the Second World War particularly. Um, her uh, last book prior to this, A Bold and Dangerous Family, um, which was described by one particularly far-sighted reviewer uh, as uh, brilliant, entertaining, gripping and moving, uh, that was me in the Guardian. That's what we like. Uh, that's we like what we that. like. We like um, uh, told, told the story of, if you like, the beginning of the Italian resistance. Um, here in A House in the Mountains, we have a story of um, the latter stages of the war in Italy. It's a story that has not been told enough, I think, and particularly the role of women in the resistance is something that feels to me urgently of the moment and uh, just a powerful, powerful story. So if you'll firstly join me in welcoming Caroline Moorhead to John Sando. Um, one of the things that struck me about this book as with the previous book is that it felt like you used ardours. So you have, the, the, the tale is essentially about four young women who were involved in the resistance, and yet ardours' diaries are the kind of central underpinning in the way that Amelia's memoir in some ways was the, the voice of a bold and dangerous family. She was uh, Carlo and Nello Roselli's mother. I wondered if you could maybe start off with talking about reading that di those diaries and what the, how they spoke to you and why they said, right, this is a story that needs to be written. I think what I started off with was that Ada is the only real link between the two books. Um, Ada in 1925 was 24 <coughs> years old and she had a six-week-old baby. And her husband, Paolo, was a tremendously intellectual. They looked like children, but they were very powerful figures of the left. And Paolo uh, was much beaten, um, Piero was much Piero, beaten. I was going to say, Sorry, unless Piero. she was married to her son, which <laughs> would, would be another story to tell. <laughs> Piero, Piero was much beaten up by the fascists. And at the end of 1924, he went to Paris um, because it was thought it was no longer safe for him to stay in Italy. He went to Paris. She was going to follow with the baby. He got pneumonia and died. And there she was at 24 with a six-week-old baby in rapidly becoming <laughs> totally fascist Italy. And where this book takes up is um, in 1943 when Italy changed sides and Ada is now in her 40s and the baby, Paolo, is now 17. And she really forms the backbone of this book because having sort of lain low through the years of fascism, she became an extremely important figure in the Italian resistance. She was the mother of the resistance in, and, and, and in one of the ways. fascinating things about it is the way that Paolo, her son, become, you, what you get is you get a generational thing. You get yes. the, her relationship <laughs> because of course one of those extraordinary stories about 
you know, and, and you've told it uh, about the French resistance, I think it's just as powerful in the Italian resistance, is the way that family ties get tugged at by the, 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 <coughs> by the exigencies of resistance, by the cause. And so, of course, Arda, who Paolo is himself in the resistance, Arda, her mother's <coughs> love for her son, is tested by the needs of resistance, by the need to, uh, to, to fight against this, this terrible threat. And by the constant fear that something's going to happen to him because it, it, it's a sort of leitmotif that runs round through her diaries and also <coughs> through this whole war period, is whether in fact Paolo is going to make it to the end. And I was furious that people gave that away in some of the reviews because <laughs> I feel that that's one of the narrative engines of yes. this. But, you know, it reads like a novel and I, I, I always think that's a slightly sort of barbed compliment no, for her. Like uh, but it, uh, it re that, that one yes. of the things that keeps you turning the pages is the fact that Paolo is brave Yes. And Arda is brave, of course, yes. but part of her bravery is the fact that she doesn't tell him, no, stay home tonight, or don't go out on this mission, don't go out. Uh, but she agonises. She, agoni she agonises over it. And indeed, you're right to bring up her diary, because, uh, because of the nature of partisan warfare, nobody wrote anything down. So there is, though I did get a lot of material from different uh, reports and <coughs> diaries and memoirs and so on, it was very difficult to find actually written material about my four women. And Arda, in 1956, produced a diary which she'd been keeping during the war. She kept it in a mixture of English and her own sort of cryptic system. And she turned this into what is really one of the sort of defining documents of the Italian resistance, which, which is her diary of these years. So I was able to, in a sense, follow what was happening to the Italian resistance in the north through the pages of her diary. And you know, it was hugely helpful to have it. And of course, if you didn't know that these people were on the side of the light anyway, you would know it through their writing, that so many of them were, and Arda herself, she was a translator yeah. into English, uh, but she was also a great prose stylist. And of course, yeah. Primo Levi, Carlo Levi, um, N Natalia Ginsberg, who, who, thank God, is slowly beginning to be recognised yeah. for the literary yes. genius that she that she is. Definitely. That one of the lovely things about reading this book is that through your book, one encounters so many other great writers. Well, that is partly because it was Turin, and partly the reason why I chose Turin was because Turin has I don't know how many of you know it. it Turin on the north. It's different from the south. It was um, originally part of Savoy. Um, it doesn't look like the rest of Italy. It has none of the sort of softness of the Mediterranean. It's built on a grid um, with these huge the Alps rising for miles behind. And in a sense, in the 30s, the 20s and 30s, under Mussolini, Turin was the intellectual capital of Italy. And uh, to a certain extent, Florence, but more Turin. Now, this was for two reasons. It had a very good university, um, and also it had a large Jewish community of scholars and writers, such as Primo Levi. Mm. And uh, you know, the, this is where the families lived. It had, Italy had a very small Jewish population. There were about 45,000 Jews in Italy in 1939, but quite a considerable number were in and around Turin. And it was the fact that they were there, and also Another very interesting thing, the Valdensians, who were a Protestant sect, largely connected to France and also to the Anglo-Saxons, lived in these valleys above Turin. And they, like the Protestants I wrote about in A Village of Secrets, they felt it was their duty to look after people in trouble and also to become partisans. So there were these two strong streams, if you like, which was the intellectual side of Turin and the Valdensians. And the intellectual side was linked to the Jewish side. And what, what, I, you know, what is so interesting about the story of the Jews in, in Italy is how integrated they were into society. They, they, this wasn't a story of ghettos. And even Mussolini's eventual anti-Semitism felt very forced and met with strong resistance Absolutely. among everyday Italians. I mean, it had the good side and the bad side. The bad side, of course, is because they felt themselves to be Italian first and Jewish second and entirely assimilated. 
they didn't really try to hide or to protect themselves. Mm, mm. There was no, there were no deportations until the Germans arrived. So until September 1943, yes, there had been anti-Semitic laws and Jews were not allowed to school, certain jobs, universities and so on, but they were never rounded up or put into prison. And it was only when the Germans arrived um, in the autumn of 43 that real attacks began on the Jews. And do you want to just talk about, for those who don't, because, I, I, you know, one of the things that you, uh, one of the, the, the points that you make quite clearly, and I think it's a, 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 a really fascinating thing, is that the story of the war in Italy is just so, uh, so much less known than, than the war in France. And this moment of openness when it is felt by those in Italy that everything is ending. So 1943, uh, you know, Mussolini is, is rounded up. Everything feels like, okay, it's you know, this is, right. this is all going to be okay. Yes. And then suddenly the descent of the Germans. And, the Germans yeah. arrive. The Germans arrive. I mean, I don't know how much you all know, but with 43, there was, for about a month, um, Badoglio ran Italy and the king, and they were all in Rome but he was negotiating secretly with the Allies to change sides. And in, on the 8th of September, the Allies landed in Salerno and Badoglio negotiated um, new terms with, with, with the British and the Americans. And at this point, a number of things happened. Badoglio and the King and the senior army officers got into their cars and fled to the south, leaving a state of total and compute, complete confusion. Badoglio went on the radio and said, very cryptically, the war will go on. And nobody had any idea what this meant. And, and, who, and who he meant the war was between and, was against. and yeah. against. Yeah. But a lot of people thought, well, it may go on, but it's not going to go on with us. However, in barracks up and down Italy were many Italian soldiers. And the question is, what were they going to do? You know, who were they meant to be fighting? You know, who was in charge of them? So they sort of drifted about. And the Germans did not drift about for a moment. The Germans had been intercepting everything, knew this was coming, had a lot of extra divisions ready, poured down through Italy and arrested every soldier they could put their hands on, put them on trains, sent them up as forced labour to Germany. This, in a way, is where the resistance began. And what makes the involvement of women so interesting is that women had been under fascism not only second-class citizens, but tenth-class citizens. Like, like Jews, there were jobs they couldn't do, education they couldn't do. They were told how to fill their Saturdays, how to bring up their children. They were non-people, they couldn't vote. Joyful obedience was demanded of Joyful them. Joyful, exactly. And what then happened was, they sort of emerged and they started thinking, watched these soldiers being picked up. These soldiers were young men, they could have been their sons. So they took them into their homes and gave them civilian clothes and helped them escape. And in a way, this was the first proper rumblings of the Italian resistance. Because they had been, um, you say it, you put it so beautifully, they'd been treated like ghosts. And actually they could move like ghosts through that world. The people didn't look at them as a threat and therefore they, they were a threat. Just before we, we move on to that, one, one of the, you know, this is a very much a kind of revisionist history because I think there is so much that has been either misunderstood or simply not spoken about the war in Italy. And one of those things is that, you know, I think I said this in my review of, uh, of your previous book, that it is as if a little bit Italy has gotten away with its fascism in a way that Germany has not because it was less programmatic, it was uh, less industrialised and it was on a smaller scale. But that is not to say that there wasn't something hugely brutal and, 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 and terrible about it. And one of the things you get on page after page of this is, is quite how horrifying it was. And I wondered whether you might read from, uh, to us from the beginning of the book where you really open with something that sets the scene and allows us to understand that we are in some very dark times indeed. Yes, what you're saying is absolutely right. And I think um, fascism and, and Mussolini have in a way got away with things likely. But you have to, you really have to then say it was not like Germany. Of course. Or indeed like Spain. 
um, and nor indeed in many ways like France. But it was not like Spain because the the resistance did not allow it to be like Spain and and because I think the fascists were not like the phalangists and the Nazis. Mm, mm. I think, you know, the Italian version of, of Nazism and fascism was a more nuanced thing. And yes, <coughs> yes, terrible things happen. I'm not defending in that. Um, but on the other hand, it wasn't that terrible. It wasn't as terrible as some of the other things, not as Stalin, not as, yep, okay. not as Hitler. But I think that's why I make the distinction between the industrialization that Absolutely. there was there was still something that was personal about the things in Italy that was not personal in the way that yes yeah that there was not the kind of rendition of no. humans I mean the, the, the way the Jews were treated was actually rather a good example of this mm. because from the moment um, that the but the Germans uh, took over Italy um, they they gave part of south of france to to Mussolini to the italians to, and said and now you will send us your jews and Mussolini said yes absolutely i will send you our jews and nothing happened and a bit of time went by and you know people came down to say to Mussolini but where are they why aren't you putting them on trains and he would say of course i must get these lists together <laughs> and this went on quite a long time I mean, I, I don't want this to be a defence for Mussolini, but <laughs> there, there were softer sides about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Shall I read this? Beginning? Yes, please. On the evening of the 12th of March, 1945, soon after dinner, there was a knock on the door at a modest house in one of Turin's northern suburbs, home to many of the workers in the city's vast industrial sector. Teresa Arduino was on the balcony with her youngest daughter, 13-year-old Bruna, hanging up the laundry. Her six-year-old son, Antonio, was in bed asleep. Outside were three young men, claiming to be partisans and wanting to be put in touch with a fighting brigade up in the mountains. They were invited to come in. The Arduino family were well regarded locally as long-term members of the resistance, fighting the Germans and the fascists, and Teresa's husband, Gaspari, a socialist and steelworker with Fiat, had been arrested 18 times for his political sympathies. Teresa helped train young men and women serving with the urban partisans. This was a stronghold for the resistance. In the kitchen were Gaspari and Teresa's two older daughters, 19-year-old Vera, who had a job in a sweet factory, a young woman who took life on her old, as eldest child seriously, and who worked for the resistance, carrying messages between the headquarters of the partisans in the city and those hiding in the mountains. And Libera, 16, who, when not at her own job in a mechanics factory, helped the families of imprisoned partisans and regularly gave blood to the Red Cross. With them that evening was another young partisan, 24-year-old Rosa Gizzone, who, like the Arduino sisters, was a staffetta, a runner, a courier, a transporter of weapons, a guide. Rosa was pregnant. Her husband, Numeris Fiancé, and another partisan had just arrived to move Gaspari to a safe house on the grounds that he was in increasing danger of arrest. Once inside the house, the three strangers pulled out guns, said that they belonged to Mussolini's black brigades, and forced Gaspari and the three girls to follow them out to a car. <coughs> they also took away the three partisans. The fascists wanted to take the whole family, but Gaspari persuaded them to leave his wife and younger children at home. The men were taken to the fascist party headquarters the Littorio, in the centre of Turin, where they were separated. While Signora Arduino combed the city for news of her family, her husband and the other men were executed in different parts of the city. Vera, Libera and Rosa were driven to the banks of the Pellerina Canal, where they were shot in the back of the neck. Vera and Libera died immediately, but Rosa was only wounded, managed to get free and threw herself into the canal where the current carried her to the shadow of a bridge. The young fascists ran after her, firing into the water and hitting her several times. Believing her to be dead, they left to report their successful execution to the Turin fascist leader, Giuseppe Solaro. Though badly hurt and covered in blood, Rosa dragged herself out of the water and crawled to a nearby house. Her baby was stillborn. Rosa herself died not long after. News of the killings travelled rapidly around the city. For a while, no one knew where the bodies had been taken 
or where or when the funerals would take place. But then a man working in the city morgue reported that Vera and Libera were to be buried on the Saturday, three days later, in a central cemetery. Throughout the industrial suburbs, from house to house, from family to family and woman to woman, the word went out to call a strike. Call a strike in your family. Gather the women. Come to the funeral. Bring with you something red, a wreath, a scarf, a bunch of carnations. By 8.30 on the morning of 16th of March, more than 2,000 women carrying red flowers and wreaths, tricolour flags and placards denouncing the fascist brutality had gathered the gates of Turin's main cemetery. Some wore red sweaters, others red scarves. Some were elderly, others little more than children. It was one of the biggest demonstrations by women in the history of Turin, and they were angry. There had been many killings in the previous <coughs> 19 months, but the cold-blooded shooting of these girls touched something in their imagination. When two Fiat cars appeared at 9.15, they were assumed to be bringing representatives from the unions, but the plain-clothed men who got out belonged to Mussolini's crack anti-partisan unit. They fired guns into the air, trampled on the flowers and wreaths, tore up the placards. Reinforcements arrived in lorries. The women scattered, finding hiding places inside the church behind a florist's booth between the graves. Some were able to infiltrate themselves among the mourners of another funeral, but a number were caught and lined up facing the cemetery wall, their hands above their heads. One woman, whose son had already been shot by the fascists, began to curse the men. The fascists attempted to drag her onto a lorry, but her friends surged around, hiding her. A 90-year-old woman fainted. More fascists arrived and set about the loading women onto their lorries trying to discover where the cursing woman was hidden so that they could shoot her. At this moment, three hearses drove up, one each for Rosa, Vera and Libera. A woman in the crowd called out, let us kneel. Singing the hymns composed by the resistance, several hundred women were then rounded up and driven away to the grim-faced barracks in Via Asti. In the following days, some were released, others were still there when, six weeks later, Chorin uh, was liberated. There were four women in particular who had been fighting with the resistance for the previous 19 months and who were closely connected in each in their own way with the Arduino sisters. Two attended the funeral, two had been ordered to stay away. <coughs> just, two, uh, just two tiny bit more. Um, for Ada Gobetti and her friends whose stories this book tells the Civil War was not simply about ridding Italy of fascism and the Germans. It was about creating a new, fairer, democratic society in which women were, by law, to be equal partners in work and in the family. That it was not to be, that Italy could have changed but did not, is one of the tragedies of what Ada called La Nostra Battaglia, our battle. It's a, a wonderful opening because it, of course, contains within it <coughs> the, the hope and the eventual despair that, that is the story uh, of, of women in this war. Um, I, I wanted to think a little bit about this idea of the staffette. Um, and there was a rather strange, I mean, very positive review in the times but it was sort of slightly tendentious and it took issue with the cover I know of the book um in what i thought was a rather unfair way well i'm glad you thought that um <laughs> in that it said well you know actually women had a much broader role than just carrying guns and and of course the book is absolutely clear that they had a much broader role and indeed that is one of its central theses is that that resistance can happen in so many different ways that it doesn't just need to be blowing up railway bridges that or, or kidnap i mean there's a lovely passage where that where uh, a a young woman is is um sort of the the bait for for um <coughs> for german officers and they come and talk to her and then they're bundled into a car and used to swap for for, for resistance prisoners I think one of the themes of the book is that actually women are able to fulfill more roles in terms of the resistance than, than men are. And you talk about 
the range of different meanings for this word stafetta, that that represents all the different meanings of resistance. Yeah, there was almost nothing they couldn't do. And the, the, the exciting thing, which they just discovered quite quickly, was that these young women who became partisans, and some of them were 16, 17, 15, was that until then in fascist Italy, they'd been kept at home, they wore short white socks, they didn't go out in the evenings, they had no uh, time with boys, they had no conversations with boys, they were completely isolated. And when they became pa partisans, they were so excited, and many of their memoirs and papers and letters I found talk of this fact that, that suddenly something wonderful had happened to them. They were free. They could go out. A great thing was made in the partisan world that the women were to be respected. There was no advantage was to be taken by these women. But within that, they were the first times in their lives. They were free and they had some kind of power because some of them rose to run whole bands and whole mm. groups and so on. But they were also, at first anyway, until the Germans began to see what was happening, they were able to be much more ambitious because the Germans never stopped them. So they transported weapons in their baskets, on the handlebars of their bicycles, under their babies in prams, um, all over the place. Um, they carried messages up into the mountains. They were forever on their bicycles. There is a very nice account of one young woman who, when the word went out to say that um, the partisans were very short of leather for shoes, she would go to the smart hotels, the grand hotels, which were frequented by the Germans in Turin, and she would sit on a very large, uh, on large leather chairs with a sharp knife, <laughs> and she would spread out her coat, and then she would, <laughs> she would cut round, and as she got up and went away, she would be carrying with her a large piece of leather. <laughs> And this is something probably only the women could have done. Of course, of course. No, I mean, it's, you know, it is. It, and, and they, as you say, they, particularly at the beginning, they were just able to do all of this without anyone thinking that they were a threat. And that's what's so lovely about it, that they were incredibly well-ordered, incredibly... And, you know, there's a, a great bit where you say it's often wondered why the resistance in Italy was so much better organized, so much more successful, so much more powerful than elsewhere because women were in charge of it. Women were in charge of bits of it, that is certainly yeah. true, but, the, but again the people who got involved with it were very impressive people, the people who ran these different bands. I mean one of my favorite characters who I only discovered relatively towards the end was a nun and this nun was in charge of the women's section of Turin's main prison. And um, in 1943, the Germans took over part of the prison and said that they would keep all the partisans and the Jews they arrested in their German part. And um, Suor Josepina, who was absolutely formidable, <laughs> thought to herself, no, I'm not sure they will. So she, <laughs> so she immediately got the Germans to agree that she could at least have the women and children, provided she kept them apart from the common prisoners. And that was okay. And so that was happened for a bit. And then she thought, well, now, actually, now I've got to do something about the men in this mess. So she offered for her nuns to look after the Germans um, and to clean their cells and to get special food for them. Then she got herself into the, into, the, into the German part, where she discovered that no food was getting to the partisan prisoners, so they were dying of hunger. So she got some pigs and she put them in the central courtyard and she said to the German commandant that she needed to bring in food to feed the pigs. And there was always lots of food left over and she somehow, with the linen, got it into the... And then when the Jews started arriving with their small children, um, she used to regularly leave the prison with the washerwoman on washerwoman's days, <coughs> helping her push the enormous great um, sort of wheelbarrow and funnily enough, at the end of the day, there would be one Jewish child left, left in, in the prison. Mm -hmm. oh. And she was wonderful. She was wonderful. It's a, it, the whole and those single stories of incredible bravery and ingenuity and the way she would place these children with family, you know, it is almost enough to counter the incredible lack of action by the Vatican and by the church more 
centrally, if you if you like. And there were there were priests as well. Individuals. You talk, there were individuals whose incredibly brave, yeah. incredible personal bravery, as I say, was almost enough to counteract the fact that the the Pope did nothing at all. No, there were many many people hidden in the Vatican mm. during the course of the war. In the north, there was a very good cardinal, and but again, he had to follow the Pope's orders. So what he, he officially did nothing, but he unofficially said to his priests, you can do what you think right. So all up and down the mountains in, in Northern Italy, there were very brave priests. And what one has to remember is that many were shot, many were arrested and shot, along with many women. Um, the 4,000, something like in the north, 4,600 women lost their lives in those 20 months. Hanged, shot, tortured to death, deported to Auschwitz. So uh, these young women, and some of them were 17. I was thinking while I was reading it about why we remain so endlessly fascinated with the Second World War. Why. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Robert McCrum who said um, that uh, Eng English literature would be nowhere without World War II. Um, and there was a there was a passage uh, that you quote from Levy about halfway through the book. He says, "We were bound together, men and women, by a serious and profound feeling that comes from having lived through important years together, and for having lived them without too much weakness." And I thought that wonderful, is it called litotes, the kind of excessive understatement there, yeah. of what they'd been through and of the incredible bravery and the fact that actually in these mucky times, looking back on an era where good and evil were so clearly delineated and where people were able to act in a way that was properly heroic. And that's what I got from this book. It made me want to be a better person. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's rather there was a scene that I was rather touched by, which is at, at the very end, um, the the Italians wanted to liberate Italy themselves. They did not want to be liberated by the Allies. By and large, that was not possible in the <coughs> south, or as the Allies went up towards the north. But Turin was absolutely determined to liberate itself. So as the Allies approached, they had arranged to have all the partisan formations in the north. So we're talking about 100,000 people, because the, the numbers were actually were huge, ready to come down at a given signal, the night of the 25th of um, April 1945. And the, it happened, they began to descend on the thing. Now, Ada was thought too valuable to be allowed to join in the fighting. She was put in charge of the staffette, the women, the young women. And she had a safe house, a, a villa, which had been lent by, by somebody for these women on the edge of Turin. And from there, she masterminded a lot of the women who were carrying messages between formations. And they'd come back there. And the night of the, the, the first night, all these women gathered in this villa. And what is touching about the scene that they later remembered afterwards is that they felt unbelievably pleased and excited that they had managed to liberate and that they survived the war. But they also felt a bit sad because they realized that this period of incredible intensity, of friendships, of, of working in a united way for something they really believed in was going to be over. And there was this sort of mood and they sat there thinking, talking about what had happened, talking about the people they'd lost and realizing that something was over. Yeah, yeah, it is very, I mean, very, very powerful. Um, I wonder if you could say something about the place of the mountains in the Italian resistance, because it feels to me, you know, the, the Valpellice was the cradle of the resistance and Arda's home at Meana was, was obviously important. But it feels like those mountains also play a kind of sim <coughs> symbolic role. I mean, these the resistant members, resistance members. So many of them were climbers before they were partisans. That's, right. That's a very important fact. So they were they were sort of healthy and strong. Um, the mountains had always been this great draw for anybody living in that part of Italy, because it, they they loom over 
over Turin and over the northern cities, these great, the, the, the White Alps. And in the winter, it, on clear sunny days, you see these wonderful mountains disappearing forever in these different colors. And these, a lot of these people were mountain people. And it served them very well, particularly at the beginning, because what they would do is they would, they would have hiding places up in the mountains, either in mountain huts or in their own houses, hidden away in barns and so on. The problem was that the Germans too were mountaineers. Mm. So once they started, once they realized that, it took a few months for them to realize what was happening about the Protestants. They didn't really quite believe in them to start with, partly because they really despised the Italians and they didn't really think that they would get something like this together. But then of course, then they did believe it. And they formed, I mean, they had an enormous <coughs> amount of manpower and they also had the help of the fascists, the ones who had gone with Mussolini and were in the rump republic in the East. And these men were truly brutal. And they went up into the mountains in pursuit of the partisans. And if they didn't find the partisans, they took the villagers and they set fire to these mountain villages. And one of um, Ada's you know, most evocative entries is she comes back, because she went up and down between Meana and Turin, and she comes back and as she's getting near her village, all she can see in the, in the clear, still winter light is the smoke rising from the village, because all the village houses have been set on fire. You talk about the way that Germany <coughs> didn't really give credit to the to the partisans and how that helped. But of course, one of the problems was that the Allies also really looked down on the Italians Absolutely. and they didn't fit. And <clears throat> there is this sort of horrible situation where nobody believes that the Italians can do anything but stuff things up. Absolutely. And I mean, one of my most enjoyable bits of research was in the uh, public record office here, reading the reports of the people on Italy written by well-meaning visitors to Italy in the, just before the war and so on, describing the Italians. And right <coughs> through the war, uh, even when they were on the scene and witnessing what the Italians were doing, their reports were so patronizing about, you know, we, we, they'll need all the help we can get and don't let's have any faith in them and so on. <coughs> and one of the villains for me of this book was, an, it was a British colonel who was seconded to head the mission, the, the, the Allied mission, to northern Italy at the time of liberation. Now, much as the, the partisans wanted to liberate Turin themselves, he was determined to stop them. And what he did was completely inexcusable. He spoke some Italian, he got to know the, he was parachuted in, he, he got to know the partisan leaders. And he knew exactly when, when D-Day was, when the moment was gonna come and they were going to rise up. And he managed to intercept and falsify orders that were going up from central to command to some of the outlying partisan formations about how they would come in. And he's, he sent a false report saying, we have decided you should hold everything until further orders. Result of which is, Turin rose up in the factories, all the women working in the factories, the men in the streets, the men in the factories, everybody was ready for the uprising and they rose up they didn't get all their reinforcements. So many more people died than should have died in those, in those first hours until it was realized what had happened. I, I mean, the surprising thing is that this man was not lynched. Um, did he get lynched? He did not. No. He should have been. He should have been, but he <laughs> didn't. No, he um, didn't. <coughs> we speak about the resistance, and yet, of course, that is hugely over oversimplifying because the resistance was made up of, as you say, people who were on the outside for religious reasons, the Valdensians and the, and, and the Jews, but also an absolutely baffling array of different uh, stripes of leftist politics um, from the absolute hardline communists, which were, by the way, one of the reasons that the British were so uh, reluctant to trust the Italians because they felt that this was just really opening the way for for Russia to move into to Italy but it was a hugely complicated political situation 
bafflingly so it seems for those involved within him and I wonder whether bewilderingly so for the historian <laughs> trying bet. to delve into those you stories. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the point is when I started on this as I do whatever I start I always think it's not going to be quite as difficult as it is mm -hmm. and when I discovered that there were moments in Italy when there were three governments and four armies um, all fighting in different directions with different aims in different parts of Italy and that I somehow had to keep them going and make sense of them. It nearly killed me. And I made a terrible mistake of going away while I was writing it um, for three weeks. Um, and when I came back to it, it was as if it was all new to me. And I had to spend another, another two months trying to work out what it was the Allies were coming up from and what this commander said and what this partisan was saying and where Primo Levi fitted in. And I swore that I would never do anything as difficult again. Well, it's crystal clear when you're when one is reading it um the end of the book is is both uplifting and depressing uh it's uplifting because there's a, a there's an amazing picture i mean i should have i should have marked it but they, there's a picture of the staffette walking so this this there picture is. here which is just heartlifting and it is the the young women marching through the streets of turin following the I think it, it doesn't say it's Turin, but I kind of presumed it, Turin, it was, yeah. yeah. Marching through the streets of Turin following the liberation. And it's just this upswell, and you, you feel, you sort of cheer as you see it. And then you get what happens after. And so many of the problems that I think Italy still faces were baked into it in the really chaotic mm. immediate post-war years. And so much of the promise that was held out for the women of Italy and that Arda seemed to believe would be a natural consequence of the role that they had played in the war, it just fell away. It fell away incredibly quickly. And it's so depressing it was, that that should happen. And I mean, the, almost more depressing what happened was that in the immediate aftermath of the war, um, the fascists um, were arrested, perfectly understandably. A number were shot, not, not a huge number, but a number, uh, and lots were put in prison. But in 1948, Togliati, who, though a communist, was Minister for Justice in a Christian Democrat um, government, declared an amnesty. And these uh, murderous fascists were released, but the partisans were arrested. And they were charged with murder for, for spies they had shot, uh, with theft um, for vehicles and food they had helped <coughs> themselves to. And it was a terribly bitter time for the Italians. And I think quite a lot of the sort of later sort of bitterness in Italy comes from this appalling fact that by 48, the fascists, <coughs> were, most of them were back in their old jobs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this obviously, uh, or, or obviously, I, I presume that both the Roselli book and this book came out of your work on Iris Origo. Yes. Um, and I wondered whether you were going to stay in Italy for your next book or whether, <laughs> I mean, I wondered whether um, Spain, I heard whispers of Spain. No, 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 uh, no. no more Italy? More Italy. The thing is, like, um, A, the Italian archives are fabulous because they're underused. Goes yep. back to what yep. you say. Yeah. I mean, Italy and Germany, are, uh, sorry, France and Germany, are so much written about, but the Italian archives, which are completely excellent, are, are very underused. And anybody writing about this period has got the wonderful benefit of the fact that Mussolini had a huge network of spies. 10,000 informers in Italy. And what they did was they wrote reports on everybody, on each other, <laughs> within the Vatican, inside factories. Anything moved, you wrote a report on it. Sent a report to Rome, where secretaries typed it up and filed it away. And those files are available. So what you can do, you can sit reading these reports. They're anonymous. Um, what is really frightening about them is you realize that often they're written by friends. They're not yeah, necessarily yeah. the person in the street. They're your best friend who came to dinner. You don't know the name, but, but that's where they all are. Um, so it's absolutely impossible not to go on but being in Italy. <laughs> and what I'm doing now is I wanted to go back to something which I couldn't 
I didn't know about, I didn't understand enough when I was doing the Iris Arido book. I didn't understand properly the extent to which the Italian upper and upper middle classes were complicit with fascism. Mm. And I think I let all that off too easily. And I was always a bit cross with myself that I hadn't actually looked at it more closely. Although you do touch upon it because, of course, one of the, uh, the if you like, the dark shadow of, of the resistance women is the the, the the women that Mussolini got to and got to, 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 to push his cause and they were were you know the upper middle classes and even That's upper right. classes and and I am fascinated by all that side of it anyway so I wanted to go back to that and I was trying to think how I would do it and I, what I realized I wanted to do was I write, wanted to write about what it was like to live in fascist Italy in the 20s and 30s for the 20 years of fascism what it did to Italy what it what it did to the imagination of Italians, and particularly um, the, the, the nobility, if you like. I wanted to understand how all that worked. So what I'm doing is I'm doing, um, I'm doing this through doing a life of Mussolini's daughter, Edda, yeah. who was married to Ciano, the foreign minister. <laughs> and she was, she was um, <coughs> married to Ciano in 1930, when she was 19. So for the 20 years of fascism, she was growing up as a girl, but then she was also the sort of, she was the pinnacle of the fascist women, really, she was meant to be. She was very like her father. Um, she was interesting, she was bloody-minded, she was intelligent, uh, and she is a fascinating figure. And she begged for her husband's life right at the end. And she begged for his life, because, yeah. I mean, what is wonderful for anybody writing, you need a little bit of drama. Um, is that to, to have your father execute your husband is is, is pretty Greek, isn't it? It's I mean, very it's, good. There's some, it's there's Greek some stuff. Really, yeah, exactly. That's brilliant. So that's oh, I'm I excited. At this point in the evening, Caroline and Alex turned to the audience for questions. The first of which asked about a kind of tension for women between the joyful obedience which Mussolini demanded of them and their powerful matriarchal domestic role. Yes, but what you have to remember is that, is that Mussolini um, decreed that women would stay at home, give up their jobs if they had jobs, have, I'm so sorry, have, have children, uh, have, if possible, sons um, for the homeland. Um, yes, they were very powerful in the home, but they had no power outside the home. And, and what yep. um, being partisans and in the resistance gave them was gave them an idea that they could do more than this, that they didn't, that, that their powers, that they could be fair, that they could be equal citizens. And um, Amelia Rossini, Rosselli, herself was a slightly ambiguous figure in the sense that, yes, she was a very strong woman, yes, she decreed things for her sons, but at the same Mother. time, she didn't want her daughter-in-law to work, if you remember. Yes. Italian women didn't get the vote till after That's the war. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was a major difference. Okay, lady here. I just wanted to ask if the Alpini were splendid um, marriages yes. with an Italian, and um, if the Alpini were a splendid group of men, did they not think of helping the partisans and things like that? Oh, was yes. There any movement? Oh, yes, indeed there was. I mean, a lot of these partisans' bands were made up of a great mixture of people, some of whom were disbanded um, soldiers. And many of these soldiers who had managed to get away and not be sent off went up into the mountains. Mm. Indeed, it, that's Men. certainly true. Mm. Many mm. soldiers. One person asked exactly when did the Italian resistance start? Well. As such, it didn't start until Italy changed sides. There had been anti-fascists all during the 30s. And, the, indeed, and, the, and, and indeed, the, the you know, Matteotti. And Matteotti, yeah. as from sort of the, the killing of Matteotti on. There'd been a strong anti-fascist. But of course, they'd all emigrated because they were not safe in Italy. 15,000 were arrested and sent to penal colonies in the south of Italy. By the time war broke out, there was very little resistance in Italy. I mean, Italy really was sort of squashed by fascism. So it made the emergence of the resistance all the more extraordinary. <laughs> and it happened very quickly when Italy changed sides. 
and um, you know <coughs> the figure given for resist the resistance in Italy now is about six hundred thousand people. And I mean the assumption always, particularly by the foreigners, was that it was a you know a couple of thousand of, um, you know ill-armed people. On the contrary, it was six hundred thousand, and they were very well organized and well led. Someone then asked about the background of those 600,000 resistors. Um, about half or more were communists. And they had, you have to remember Italian communism is not Stalinism, it is a bit more like a sort of left-wing socialism, if you like. And they had, as it were, honed their political interests um, in most often in the north, in the industrial north. Uh, and there had been strikes um, before and into the war, very often women playing quite a considerable part in them. Um, the, the, when, the, when the resistance started, the communists were the best organized. The communist movements and brigades uh, were definitely the best organized. But they were by no means exclusive and sometimes they were mixed. So when you say, I should say, of the 600,000, very loosely, three to 400,000, were emerging from the communist past, if you like. To what extent they were fully proper communists is another matter, but that's what they came from. And the others were social democrats, liberals, Catholics, nobody very much. Thugs, you know people who were on the make, um, yeah. that it was, a, it was like anywhere else. It yeah. was a, 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 you know, and, and I think that we know a lot more about France in terms of the resistance than we know about Italy. But it, yeah. it was, as you say, and that's partly because it was in the interest of the West to damp down this idea of a heroic communist uprising. Yeah. The final question asked if the Italian resistance had a means to identify with Greek and French communist resistors. Well, certainly the French, um, and one of um, the things that Ada did was um, she, with her son and, and a group of other young partisans, they went over the mountains into France and linked up with the French resistance and came back with a lot of weapons and, you know, agreements to how they would proceed together. You only have to look at how close on the close. map you know if you look that's Merna where where Arda's house was I mean it really is just spitting distance from the French border there however it's a hell of a journey a hell of a journey absolutely um, in, in the snow um, and it was amazing they got back alive mm. um, it really was so yes um, a certain extent of course with linked up with Yugoslavia and um, Trieste not much for the Greeks no because by then you see um, the Allies had um, had occupied and were moving north, so they were really cut. It was different race. phases of the war, it wasn't was it? Because actually, Greek Greece had already happened yep. by that point. Yeah. There's no need to disappear unless you need to, but feel free to if you wish to. It's, um, <laughs> uh, there are books to buy. There's more wine to drink. But meanwhile, thank you very much thank to Caroline and to Alex for giving up your time this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.